Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another podcast interview. This is actually the first one we have done face-to-face. If you listen to our other podcast, FitLab PGH, one of the first interviews I did was with my rolfer, Brian Jolie. And with Moving to Live, what we want to do is we want to provide insightful interviews for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados. And I've found as I've gone through life, as I've gone to professional conferences and talked to people and mentioned my experiences with rolfing, the first question that most people ask is, what, what is rolfing? What is rolfing? So I thought that it would be kind of neat for Moving to Live to have a month of interviews where I do kind of alternative treatments that people might do who are active. So I'm going to interview Brian, who is a rolfer, and I'm also going to interview my acupuncturist. So I think it'll have some interest. I think what's the most interesting stories for Moving to Live is how people got to where they are. So we're going to take a little bit of time and get to know Brian a little bit more. Brian, thanks for taking time to come to the South Hills of Pittsburgh, do a mountain bike ride, and then be interviewed. And thanks for the delicious lunch from Lisa and Ben. Very nice. And ben gave me a wonderful tour of Mingo Creek Park, but we're trying to keep that quiet, so don't tell anybody. So my question that I want to start with that I think is really interesting, if you see somebody and they happen to hear you talking and you are a talker and you say that you're a rolfer and they say, what's a rolfer? What's the down and dirty answer for somebody who doesn't want to go to the Rolf Institute or actually get Rolf, but they're kind of curious of what is rolfing? Yeah, that's a tough one. So <clears throat> I can answer that a couple different ways. So the, ele- the, the quick elevator speech is, you know, most people at this day and age know what a chiropractor is. And many people, probably, you know, 80% have been to a chiropractor. So sometimes I say things like, rolfing is to muscle as chiropractic is to bone. And that usually get then people say, oh, is it like massage? And I'm like, uh, not quite. Oh, I go, I, but they're always going to tell you, oh, I have a deep tissue massage therapist. I'm like, oh, good for you. 
My comment when people ask me how it differs from massage, and you can correct me if this is wrong or not, is I say, well, with rolfing, they deal more with fascia and not just with muscles. Is that correct, or am I way off base with that? No, that, that, that that's correct. But let's. I would even go. I would even go broader. I would even go broader. Um, ultimately, ultimately, rolfing is not a technique; it's a vision. So, ultimately, rolfers. If you're a good rolfer, you should embody the work. You will embody the work. So the work would speak to you. And, you know, if I had a rolf were alive right now, there's things about rolfing that I do every day that she would say, oh, yeah, that's rolfing. And then there's this whole progressive end of things where now we're, we're doing a lot of nerve work. We're doing a lot of really interesting back work. We're doing, I, I mean, I'm doing some cranial stuff that's, it's, I'm going to call it Rolfing-influenced cranial work. But most people under, would understand cranial sacral work as very light touch. They, they come from the upledger or the, the stills, you know, uh, something like that where, where the pressure is way different. So, I mean, definitely I'm thinking fascia. I'm, fascia just moves different than muscle. That's, that, that's I guess, one of the key, key pieces. And I think that's something for most people probably before five or six years ago, if you weren't in the bodywork field, you didn't really understand what fascia is. And now if you look in sports medicine, it's becoming much more popular. Right. And I think it's kind of funny because, you know, Ida Rolf died in 1979 and, you know, people were getting Rolf back in the late fifties, mid fifties. So, you know, there's a whole, you know, uh, 60 years, 70 years of, of work that's already been out there. And um, it's just interesting how people were always trying to recreate the wheel and, and everything. But there's a lot, you know, anyway, it, that's enough. I, I don't want to get on my... The down and dirty definition is rolfing is to muscle what chiropractic is to joints. And when we come back in two weeks and talk to Brian more about the rolfing, We'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Sure. What I think is very interesting and one of the reasons I started moving to live is I think people's stories, how they got to where they are. So where did you grow up, Brian? And I guess before we even find out about how you got involved with rolfing and what the education it takes to become a rolfer, what did you do? So, you know, most people that we've interviewed said, well, you know, I started out, I did this or I did that. So mm -hmm. I know you were a runner growing up and a fairly serious runner. If I remember our conversations, you're somebody who peaked at like 120 miles a week, which puts you way above me because I think the most I ever peaked at was 45 or 50 and it about killed me. Uh, you're giving me a little bit too much credit. In college, we were doing 100 mile weeks regularly. I, I think I, yeah, maybe I topped out at, you know, 115, something like that. But, but I mean... I was doing um, marathons in college, and literally, I figured out that 15 miles a day was what I could do, and that really gave me some great, great marathon times. Um, and that's, you know, 105 miles a week. <laughs> and that was you growing up when you were in junior high school and high school, you were a runner, was that correct? Yeah, well, you know, I started out with like a lot of people, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this, you know, you, you asked me to, to interview me a couple of weeks ago and I was thinking about this, you know, my mother, neither my mother nor my father necessarily came from, um, it's time, <laughs> 
Yes, we are interviewing Brian in my home, so you may hear dogs in the background. Every quarter of an hour, you'll hear a clock, so it's a homey feel. I mean, I mean, neither my, my mother nor my, my dad were necessarily super physical people. I mean, my, my dad, he grew up in Philly. You know, he played a little bit of Sandlot football. He probably played some baseball, but he was a hunter and a fisherman, uh, he did have skis. I, I I remember, and these are these old school skis where you could just strap them to your boots. You didn't need regular old ski boots. And I would, we would ski down the back hill behind our house. So, I mean, I was always pretty active. And, um, you know, I did a little bit of t-ball. I really wasn't, I mean, we didn't have t-ball then. We just, it was just, you know, slow pitch baseball. And, eh, I wasn't that great a hitter. Um I started playing football. I mean, I was actually a decent football player, but I was 130 pounds or 125 pounds. And, um, you know, we, we would run, we would run for football season. So football season would start in August. You'd be doing two a days. And so we'd go out in July and start to run to get ready for, that was the thing. You had to get ready for football season. So we'd go run three, five miles or whatever. And I, I never minded it. I liked it. And oh, the other thing is, is that I, I, this is true too. I was in a really active Boy Scout troop, really, really active. At one point, our 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 one scout leader left, and this other scout leader came in, and he wanted us to get serious and earn merit badges, and we didn't want to do that. We actually, we actually got that guy. We gave that guy such conniptions that the old scout master came back. So scouting, we did the CNO Canal. Some of the kids on our trip, like we were like 12 or 13, some of the kids had three speeds. I mean, I had a 10, I got a really nice 10 speed Schwinn Continental. It was red and I rode that thing everywhere. So we did the CNO Canal. That's, you know, that was a uh, hundred miles from Cumberland to DC. And for people who don't understand what that is, that's a rails to trails. Well, it- at that time, that, no, the, the CNO Canal it's never a rail. The CNO Canal was a was a um, is it still is? They've maintained, you know. So the, the, the this this Great Allegheny Passage from Pittsburgh to Cumberland is you know uh, crushed stone and it's a really hard surface. But once you get on it's the CNO at, at Cumberland to D, to uh, Georgetown, that's the old um, towpath and it's mud. If it rains, it's mud. So that was originally where the oxen or the donkeys the, or the, the mule, donkeys or yeah, the mules yeah. would carry along so, the barges. So here we are. Here we are. There's like ten of us. We got a scout leader. We we this was a really cool trip. We actually stayed in a youth hostel that was old slave quarters. I mean, I don't even know if that if that youth hostel exists. And then we got into Harper's Ferry. We stayed in the youth hostel there that was still there. But but here's what happened. It started to rain like back in the day we would do you know, 30 to 40 miles was a big deal on a, on a, on a three speed, on a five speed for 12 year old, 11 year old, whatever age or age we were. It rained one time so hard that we got off the towpath because it was in, it was, you couldn't manage it. And we went on the back hills of, of West Virginia and Maryland. And let me tell you, that was some, I mean, I love hills. That was some great riding. I don't know where we were. I mean, you know, I don't know. 
I, to recreate that, I don't, I'd, I'd have to, I don't know who I'd get in touch with, but I loved Hills and that was a lot more fun. And, um, so we did, we did that trip one year. The next year we went to Toronto. We rode to Toronto and back. So I'm curious, or maybe it, I'm misunderstanding is it sounds like you tried a variety of activities and realized, you know, the more solo pursuits or the things that were not a quote unquote organized team sport were things that you enjoyed. You could go out and experience the outdoors in different ways. Is that correct? Well, I mean, you know, we were with a group, but, but I think, you know, Boy Scouts for me got me into climbing. It got me into, we did a canoe trip. We did like the Clarion River in canoes. And then my brother's Boy Scout leader, my brother had a, had a Boy Scout leader who was like 26 and I was like 16 and we actually, that guy and I became friends and we ended up renting kayaks and doing like 25 miles of whitewater without having a roll. And, you know, so it's like, you know, I, I and then there's one time my, my brother and I, we did like a, we, we didn't, you know, this is back in the day, no cell phones. We cross country skied from like Hidden Valley to Seven Springs to, um, uh, what's it, Laurel Hill and we got back in the dark. And for people who are not from the Pittsburgh area, we actually have people internationally. Since we've inter- interviewed a couple of people internationally, you're talking about an area in the Laurel Highlands, which are a group of small mountains just right. east, just east of Pittsburgh, which are really, really beautiful. Right. And and the fact that you, my brother and I we just basically cross country skied probably it probably I mean it, look I'm 16, my brother's like 13 or something. You know, we just did this and came back in the dark. I don't even think we had headlamps. You know, I mean, we just, I, I it was just the, the idea of exploring was always a lot of fun. Whether it was conscious or not growing up, you really hit the moving to live ethos movement. It's part of what makes your life complete. Right. You get to college, you're still a runner. What did you major in in college? And what was your, at that point in time, what was your goal as far as careers? What am I going to do? Well, that, that's a struggle. So, so the thing is, the thing is, is that, um, my dad died when I was uh, like uh, just about 12. And that was really tough because I started. So I actually was doing some drugs at that time. I was smoking some pot. I think I did some PCP. Um, I had long hair. And, you know, recently I was having a conversation with somebody. And I think I said, if it wasn't for running, maybe I would have been an addict. I don't think I was ever going to be an addict or maybe you could say I was addicted to running, but I ended up starting to run and I really quickly figured out you couldn't smoke a bunch of pot and run 10 miles. It just didn't work, you know, you know? Um, so I gave up drugs for years and years and years. I mean, when I got to college, I was a vegetarian. I was, um, you know, doing these 70 to hundred mile weeks. I was, um, you know, I, I was I was the uh, president of the outdoors club in college. I mean, I took I took people. I I you know I gave people probably their first caving trip, their first climbing experience, a lot of stuff like that. But 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 the, the thing is, so I have a younger brother, and um, it's funny because um, he was a good athlete too. He was a, he was a runner as well as I was, and he was actually his mile time. I think is actually one second faster than my best mile time. I think what's interesting when I've heard you talk about running and we've known each other for three or four years, when you tell your stories about running in college and going, I I always think of John Parker's once a runner book. (laughs) 
which for those of you who out there, if you're running or enjoying activity, that's a, a great book to read that talks about uh, distance running. So with the running, when you got to college, it sounds like you did a variety of activities. But if you're running 70 to 90 miles a week, you're a hardcore runner. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know, Ben, I went to a Division three school, and we had two All-Americans on the cross-country team. Um, we, had, we, had, we had like a 405 miler. Um, you know. And that's back before they had uh, elastic tracks. That was a cinder track with a four. Uh, we actually had. There was actually the, the beginning of, of of the rubber of the uh, you know the the eraser the rubber. There, there was a couple. There were tracks. So like my that. question with this was: Was there ever a point when you were running when you were doing those seventy to ninety miles where you thought you know maybe I could make the Olympics or the Olympic trials? Or at what point did you realize, hey, this is something I'm going to do the rest of my life? But well, I'm not going to be somebody who's going to be a Frank Shorter or a Bill Rogers. Well, I think I think I think given the right, if I had had I had the right, look, I loved my coaches, but I think if I, so part of the problem is is I love the endorphin high. Okay, I love the run. I know there were many, many, many really good races that I left on the on the interval track. Or I left, you know, doing doing a, doing a twelve mile run when I should have been tapering, or you know, had I had a better a better coach or somebody. I mean, I think I I think so. That's interesting because I, you know I was a decent miler, but I didn't have a great quarter time. To be a decent miler, you have to have you have to be sub sub sixty quarter. Um, you know, my best quarter was maybe sixty two. I think. Um, um, I think my best distance, my best distance has always been like an odd, odd distance, like 10 miles. I was really good at 10 miles. I think I've done like one 10 mile race. I think I got, I think I got a certificate. It was in Bedford. I think I did it in one Oh five. Okay. And then there's two marathons that I did and I hit the 20 mile mark in two hours. You know, I mean, those are some decent times, but you know, back was, that was before we knew about nutrition, about before, you know, we didn't know enough about, um, the wall and things like that. Where now you can, you can, you can, uh, you, you know, you don't have those issues as, I mean, people have thought about this and, and, and trained differently and stuff like that. I mean, I don't even know if I have a great 5k time, but I can tell you that one of my, one of the interval, one of the interval workouts that we did so there were these two other guys. There was a guy named Alan Brumbaugh and Terry Slagle and me. And I went to I went to Pitt Johnstown. I'm going to get back to that story in a second. Um, I went to Pitt Johnstown, and um, these two guys were townies. Pitt Johnstown was about three thousand students, fifteen of fifteen thousand or fifteen hundred, three thousand students. So fifteen hundred of us lived on campus, and fifteen hundred of us were townies. Well, these guys were townies, and and they were on the cross country team. And I got along really well with them. And, you know, they were, they were decent high school runners. I was a decent high school runner. And we realized we weren't really up to snuff on, on the college level. I mean, the college level was 10K, 10Ks um, was, was the distance, uh, you know, the, the, the distance. I think it's 4K now or something like, or 8K. So it's four miles now. But anyway, these two guys and I, we started to do marathons and we decided we were going to become Pitt Johnson's marathon team, but we were, you know, totally unofficial. And we started doing these, these long, really long, uh, workouts. And, uh, one of our interval workouts that we did, we did this more than, more than, we probably did this four or five times. 
three miles, right? Three times three. We would do nine miles. We'd do three miles in 18 minutes. So we're doing we're doing three sets of 18 minutes. So we're doing six six mile six six mile an hour or six six minute miles. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, we did that religion. So I don't have a great I don't have a uh I don't think I have a great time for the uh, for the 5K, but I know I can run three miles in 18 minutes, or I could. So it kind of just wasn't the right situation. At some level, you always realized, okay, this is something I enjoy doing. I love the endorphin high. I'm not going to make my living doing it. So what did you major in in college, or what did you do for a job when you graduated? Yeah, yeah so, my, so this is where my – getting back to my brother, this is interesting because my, my brother has had like two jobs his entire life. He, he knew – my. My parents got me a uh, chemistry set when I was like maybe 10 or maybe I was 11 or something. And my brother, one time my mother and I are upstairs. I, I, I think my dad was dead at this point. So it was probably, I was 13 or 14. And um, my mother and I are upstairs watching television. And all of a sudden we hear a loud boom in the basement. Well, my brother was fracking back in 1970-something. He went down to the creek. I'm saying that on purpose. He went down to the creek with a, with a uh, you know, a Coke bottle and got some of the uh, gas bubbling up from between the shale and he brought it home and he blew it up. And he was, you know, my brother is a chemist. He knew at that, day, that time he wanted to be a chemist and he just did that. You know, he's had one job his entire adult life. Um, he had a couple jobs in college. Me, on the other hand, I've had about twenty different jobs. I dropped out of college at, at um, I dropped out of college my uh, uh, sophomore year. I hitchhiked to Seattle. I um, realized out in Seattle that um, I. A college degree wasn't wasn't a bad thing, and I came back to college. So, you know, it was just an interesting um, thing. And so, when I got back to college, I was a I became I was a writing major, believe it or not. And it was because I'd always taken a writing class, even though I was trying. I, at one point, I was a biology major. Um, I always took a writing class, even if I was you know studying biology. And that was like, how could I get out of school quick? I could become a uh, writing major. And I did that. And one of the things I've often told Brian over the last 18 months or so is he needs to write a book about Ida Rolf. So I'm putting that out in public that he needs to write a book about Ida Rolf. So writing major, you did a variety of jobs. I think for a while, if I remember correctly, you were a drug and alcohol counselor. Is that correct? Yeah. I worked, I worked for a place called Alpha House for about seven years. Um, Alpha House was a, uh, therapeutic community for, um, recovering addicts. And, uh, it was also, it was a long-term program. It was a lot of fun. Um, the first couple of years were a lot of fun. I, I, and, um, uh, one of the things I did there is I took people out in the woods. I almost drowned two, two people on Slippery Rock Creek. Um, geez, there's nothing I love. There, there are, it's quarter to two. How about that? Um, do you think that you mentioned a few minutes ago that you were doing some drugs when you were younger, when your dad died, and then you got into running. Do you think that influenced you becoming a, a drug counselor? Or do you think that when you started working as a drug counselor, the idea of doing the outdoor activities, you thought it helped me get away from this, maybe it could help or introduce other people to it? 
Yeah, I think all of that. I mean, I don't, you know, my, my drug use at that point, you know, it, it, it was when it wasn't, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I wanted to be, so I wanted, you know, when I was in college, I was thinking about biology. I was thinking about psychology. Um, I was in a, you know, uh, I don't know if I, you know, I, th- I think I actually spent a year up in Massachusetts working with um, juvenile delinquents. And that was really hard because I had a, you know, and that was tough because you, you, you had to restrain these kids and um, you had to do like these passive restraints. And some of the time, some of the, sometimes I just want to smack these guys and uh, you know, you can't. So I didn't, you know, I did that for a year and I came back to Pittsburgh and I was doing some construction work and, and, uh, anyway, I got this job with, 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 uh, drug addicts and they were adults and I didn't have to smack them. I just had to call the sheriff and that was a whole lot better. And I know that type of career is very hard and there's often a lot of burnout. Yeah. Uh, when did you first hear about rolfing? Were you rolfed and then decided to go to school for it, or what's the story behind? Well, that's that's that, that's right up with 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 working with drug addicts. So, so um, <clears throat> there was a point where I went to a workshop, um, a counseling workshop up in uh, Niagara Falls. It was in the Canadian on the Canadian side, and. Um, I was working at Alpha House at the time, and I went up to uh, Niagara Falls, and you know, you you know, these workshops are like, you know, there's a bunch of folks there from out of town, and there was a desk there, there was a, you know, you had to sign in and get your little name card and all that that stuff, and I went up to the registration desk, and there was a very cute woman behind the desk, and uh, her name was Aline, and. Um, I said hi, and she said hi, and um, we hit it off really well, and she just happened to be a rolfer. And um, we spent, you know, a lot of that weekend together, and, you know, this was like a rarefied situation because we were at this counseling workshop, you know, you're, you're getting to know people on a different level. And so, so I asked her, I did not know very much about rolfing at all. I knew it was some kind of body work. I didn't realize what it was. And at one point I asked her, I said to her, so Aline, you know, here I am, you know, when you look at my body, what do you, what do you see? And, uh, you know, she said something to me that I probably wouldn't say this to very many people, but she basically said, if you got, uh, it looks to me like you hold fear in your chest. And if you got rolfed, you'd probably move through that quicker. And that's all I needed to hear. I had, I had just started kayaking back in Pittsburgh. I came back, you know, so like I was, you know, I came back to Pittsburgh and I got, I found the only guy in town. His name was Tom Drogi. And, um, I, this is the kayaking thing is it kind of, kind of, um, correlates because I was, you know, just starting to get, get into some heavy duty whitewater paddling. And, uh, you know, that there was a fear factor there, I guess. But anyway, I do, I did a 10 series with Tom and, uh, I probably did another five sessions on top of that. And, and by uh, 10 series, what you mean traditionally in rolfing, people, when they start out, 
uh, typically would do 10 sessions, each session focusing on a different part of the body. Is that correct? Well, yeah, yes. So Ida Rolf was a genius. This gets back to, so this is the, this is a piece of, um, you know, when you think about Ida Rolf, you got to realize she had a, she had a PhD in biochemistry before women could even vote in 1920. And she was working with fascia back then. And, um, when she, in the seventies, when she was doing all this, you know, she, she was actually working, she was actually spending a lot of time at Esalen, which is a, a situation out in, uh, it's still there out in, um, Big Sur. It's a, it's a, a conference center. Um, she quickly realized that, uh, she, you know, when she actually started the Rolf Institute, which is mid seventies, she was in Boulder. She quickly realized number one, she was, her health was failing and she needed to get people trained as Rolfers and the 10 series is both a good training tool for other, for Rolfers. It's a good way for Rolfers to learn people's bodies, but it's also a really good way of the client to experience their body because you're, you're, you know, there's, there's five principles of Rolfing and one of them is holism. And when you think about holism, like, so I often say to people, if Ida Rolf were alive today, the one word definition of Rolfing may be relationship. So as a Rolfer, you're looking at what's the relationship between this person's ankles and this person's neck, you know? And so you're, so I may be working on your, your lower legs and feet, but I'm thinking about your body as a whole. I'm thinking about how I'm affecting this upper part of, of your, your body. So the 10 series, it does divide the body up in a certain way and there's a certain you know there, there's a there's there's method behind the madness there and um yeah it's it's a great inter if if a person does not have chronic pain and if a person has the time and the money um the 10 series is a is a beautiful is a it's a, it's a beautiful uh, uh way to experience raw thing I know I was first exposed to rolfing or became aware of it when I was in grad school and at that point in time I couldn't afford it but when I got a job and lived in Florida, I went through the 10 series and I know what that reminded me of as somebody who was a runner and a triathlete, it made me very aware of my body and very aware of what things didn't work correctly. Right. Right. So I was young. I was 31 when I got rolfed and I was dating a woman who uh, grew up in Idaho and I was actually I was actually training to be a raft guide. That 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 whole winter, that whole we were on the we were on the Cheat River in February, freezing, jumping in, doing throw bag work, and um, you know I had one more. You have to do a certain amount of trips to guide in West Virginia. I had one more trip to do, and I was going to be a, a you know certified raft guide. And my girlfriend said, "I want to move back to Idaho." And, um, I had just been, you know, I just finished, I had been through the 10 series at that point. I have a couple other sessions on top of that. And we moved to Idaho and I lived there for a little while. And one of the things when I was living out there, it dawned on me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty active dude. You know, I was, I was skiing. I was, uh, I was running, I was biking. Um, and I was kayaking. One of the things I realized is, I was not getting injured. And 
you know, rolfing is all about balance. It's all about your being in your body. Um, and you know, balance is going to keep you in, I mean, you can always have a catastrophic injury, right? I could, I could slip and, and fall or I could, you know, hit a tree or whatever. Um, but, um, all things equal, the, the better balance I am in my body, um, it just my it just my body fed off of that and you know you got to realize i was 31 i was uh probably 15 pounds lighter than i am now um you know i mean youth is wonderful right but let me let me say this one one other thing ben because um i think you know i got into rolfing through this exchange with this woman aline but many rolfers get in i just want to want to want to make sure a, a lot of people get into rolfing because they have been in an injury. Like there's a guy out in Columbus named Michael. He's an artist. He fell off a scaffold, broke his hip. You know, there was a woman I was in school with. She was a CPA. She was in a head on car collision. Um, all her docs wanted her to have surgery. She got rolfed and she did yoga. She got rolfed and she did yoga. She did rolfed and she, you know, she became a rolfer. So that's way a lot of people traditionally get into rolfing through a physical injury. I'm kind of the exception there. But so you're in Idaho, you're with this girlfriend, and you made the decision you're going to move to Boulder. Actually, you don't move to Boulder because with rolfing, the education, which we're going to talk about a little bit in the second part of the interview, it's a series of courses lasting, am I correct, six or eight weeks long at a yes, time? Yes, yes. So it takes, just to give people a setup for the next interview, it takes, I think you told me, if you go to, in the right order or the typical order, two to two and a half years to become a rolfer? No, no, not, not quite that long. Um, it took me that long. Um, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm, you know, my, like once again, my, my brother had one job, I had 20. Um, I went to the Rolf Institute. Um, you know, you, I'm paying out of pocket, um, I didn't take out a school loan. So I, I, you know, I did my first two classes fairly, fairly quickly, but then I, I, I delayed for that third class. And those classes are six to eight weeks long. Is yeah, that correct? The first class was, I think six and the other two classes were eight. And how so, much, how much, is there a limited amount of time between each one? Like, could you go straight through or do you have to practice for a period of time? Well, well the Rolf Institute actually has some new, some new, uh, guidelines. When I, when I became a Rolfer, I could have done, taken my first class and come back two or three years later and no one would have said anything. But now they're trying to keep you, like if you start this year, they'd like you to finish by next year. They'd like to, they'd like to, um, a little bit more con con uh, continuity. Um, so there's a little bit of flexibility, but somewhere between a little bit over a year to a little bit under two years if all, yes, if all goes yeah. as planned. Yeah. Because what, you know, unfortunately there's not a lot, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the great rolfing instructors are starting to retire. There's not a lot of us that um, are becoming teachers. Although I'm I'm headed headed that way, but that's going to be that's going to be a two year endeavor for me to become a teacher. Um, unfortunately, um, so there may be a greater need for teachers. We don't have enough teachers. Um, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the Rolf Institute is its own. Um, I mean, it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing, but there's definitely some, some logistics that we're trying to work out. We're trying to come up to the, the 21st century. 
Um, We're talking with Brian Jolie. He is a rolfer. We've had the opportunity to learn his story growing up in the Pittsburgh area and how he transitioned through a variety of jobs and became aware of rolfing, made the decision to go to rolfing school. We've talked a little bit about the rolfing education. We're going to come back in two weeks and talk a little bit more about what exactly rolfing is, who it might be for, and how it's a little bit different from other types of bodywork. So, Brian, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for part one of our interview. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.